seconds. Bye bye. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so happy to have in the studio John Cheney Lippold here. His book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves, out this spring with New York University Press. And out early. Yes. Right, John? Yes. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. And tomorrow you're going to be at Literati Bookstore, 7 p.m., um, Will you be reading from We Are Data, or will you be Q&A? Or it's going to be one of those hodgepods, reading, commenting, questions. Yeah. Perfect. Know, okay. Yeah. For a second, I thought you were going to say comedy. I was like, <laughs> I hope I have some funny stuff. We'll might, see. This book, at first, I was, I was, I must say, I almost was resisting reading it because I was like, this is going to be. For me, it was mind-blowing. Well, but first, let's talk about Gloria Estefan. <laughs> why, why did we start the program? And thanks for picking the songs for today's show. No, I, I'm so happy. I was just gonna. I was just thinking, like, you know, the, the interviews I've been doing before have been so corporate, so kind of like, you know, you have six minutes to say exactly this, and you feel, like, entirely limited about what you can say. And so the fact that i got to choose not only what I'm going to say, but also the songs is wonderful. So the... It, the rhythm is going to get you has been a pun that I've kept in my sick my light my head for like six seven years, and I wanted to title the book "The Algorithm Is Going to Get You," <laughs> and I thought it around and I threw it to a couple presses. And the actual reason why I went with my editor at NYU is because she's like, I love it, but we can't do the title that we can make a chapter. So chapter two is is titled "The Algorithm Is Going to Get You," but. I think a lot of my head, I always thought, like, I'm going to have this book. It's going to be named after a Gloria Estefan song, and I'm going to be entirely, like, one of those guys who gets to have a pun in his title. But right. now I just have weird A rarefied that. group. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so is that also then what um, inspired you then to have, like, other titles, subtitles for each of the chapters? Is that the, Did that become, because you wanted that to be the subtitle for um, chapter two, yeah. um, did that then become the structural organizer for the others? Exactly. As well? Exactly. In order to have the joke, I had to do a lot more work, but I'm okay with it. Wordplay. Yeah. But all the, it helps though, doesn't I, it? Like I with totally the structural do. markers and, yeah. and... And it kind of gives the, the, the cadence of what you're going to be saying and also gives a thematic kind of like overview. Like you have a chapter open, the first chapter is making data useful. And that actually comes from Google's mission statement, which is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. And I always thought like, well, what does it mean to be useful? Like, 
it's based on what Google wants. And so Google's logic of how it makes the world useful for us is not according to public good and, you know, what right. we might want. It's according to how they make... How they interpret. Yeah, and how they can make a lot of money from it. Uh, yeah. I know, I know. Where's that do no evil part too, right? Oh, Wasn't God, they, that... they stopped doing that. Right. They, they took that they took it language out. Like, out three or four years like, ago, they're like, we're no, we're not lying anybody. can't be hypocritical yeah. anymore. <laughs> and I think you make a connection too, how it's similar to the, um, is it similar to the NSA language as well their own mission statement you you draw parallels yeah. or that was actually and i'm not taking uh julian assange eventually was the person who got to that um but in in his own book um but the nsa and google have extraordinary lengths by which we can compare them from who's connected to who to what kind of databases are accessing but also yeah just the general purpose is one is you know google's invested in making the world useful in order for profit and for kind of discursively organizing the internet but the nsa is making data useful in order for geopolitical superiority and war in the Middle East, which is, you know, terrifying. Right, right. Yeah. John, before we go any Please. further, um, just oh, yes. I'll, I'll read fr um, from your jacket cover. So today we are talking about John Cheney Leopold's book, We Are Data, Algorithms, and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Um, and here's the bio from the book jacket. John Cheney Leopold is Assistant Professor of American Culture and Digital Studies at the University of Michigan. So... Let's fill in some some parts to this. <laughs> um, so how so it's very short and brief. Um, was that strategic? I thought that author bios were always for me. They were always filled with things that I didn't have, like Guggenheim Fellow or like Papa Bocasso's best friend when he was growing up. And I'm like, I'm just going to say what I do officially to get me tenure, though. I do wish I would have been able to put some puns in there. But I can't. Oh, I that sense this is going to be a theme. <laughs> this is going to be like, so everybody, you know, call in. Listeners, call in if you hear some puns that are under the radar, <laughs> if I'm missing any. And also in the book, too, it's funny because I have several puns that I was so fond of, and I put them in italics. But then the editor's like, you, that's way too obvious. It's like you're hitting people yeah, over the like, head with it. Let it float bottom. over them, and if they get them, that's great. But <laughs> Well, okay, well then let's fill in some of, some sure. of your backstory. So... Um, I've just met you, but I know now that you've spent some time in Argentina. Um, and so how how does this figure in? And what about maybe even your writing life? Yeah. Like, when did you start writing? And for you, was it about these ideas and a way of reckoning with the ideas and exploring them? And that's why the book came to be? Or That's it's, um, it's a perfect question because they all dovetail perfectly. So uh, I grew up in Iowa, and that's important because I love Iowa I think that the Midwest made me a very important person for myself. I think that often when you live on the coast, or because like, I, I lived on the coast later, you're trying to live for somebody else. You're trying to like you know perform an identity about aspiring towards some upward mobility, whatever. In the Midwest, it's just like I just want to be with my friends and hang out and learn and read books, and that was great. But um, I was I was I remember I was like 14 or 15 years old, and I was with my friend Ryan. And Ryan and I really like soccer. And we were up late one night because there's nothing to do. So he just watched TV. And it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. We saw this one soccer team. And it was from Argentina. And the, the fans were crazy. And people, people probably know, like, the fans in there are so intense. They're jumping up and down for 90 minutes singing and, and chanting. And I'm like, I want to watch this. And so I kept on watching that team for years. And then eventually I got the opportunity in 2005 to go. And I went to my first game. And then it was on the auspice, I, I went to moved to Argentina in 2005 under the auspice of doing research on the social <laughs> movements there. 
As one would. As one would as an academic. But I'm like, no, I really just want to see the soccer. And so <laughs> I went to all the games and I moved back there a couple times. And I spent my sabbatical there going to the games. And Which team is it? It's Boca Juniors. And they just won on Sunday 3-0. So they're about to win the, tur- the, the title for the entire year. They have three more games left. And so I'm crossing my fingers. And normally I don't care about sport. But something about now, it's... Ew. Anyway, and also the, the the second team is our arch rival River Plate, oh, and there's this oh. horrible thing. I mean, I don't want to go on, but like there's violence that happens between the two, and so it's this really high intensity, high intensity kind of thing going on. But I lived in Argentina, and so after that, um, I I found out that writing is very important for me when I move outside of my comfort zone, when I leave the U.S. especially. So I actually wrote the book in Argentina. I was doing... On your sabbatical. On my sabbatical, yeah. When you weren't at the match. Exactly. (laughs) So every six days of the week, I'm completely okay. And so I was doing writing, and I found it one of... I, I, I found that I wasn't writing in those kind of cliche, trite patterns of finding, you know, phrases that we all rely on when we're teaching or when we're writing in normal form that I was able to, speaking Spanish all the time, when you move to English, you have to be very intentional with words you use. And so I found I was able to be more intentional with the words I use, more intentional with the economy of language. And I think the book, hopefully, the book actually has a benefit to being written outside the country precisely because it took me more energy to write the good parts that then when the reader reads them, hopefully they'll be able to experience those good things at a higher level than, you know, just the banter that normal academics write with. It is. It's very readable. Oh, thank you. Um, and so once I got over my initial <laughs> resistance that this is going to, you know, be scary and frightening, this idea of data and some of like and surveillance and, and, and algorithms privacy. too. And, well, yeah. <laughs> that actually wasn't the really? worst oh, part. Okay. Yeah, I right. actually kind of like I like the sound of it. I was like, huh. Okay, so these structural systems that yeah. But then once you read the book, then you know that. Um, there's more to be concerned about, yeah. I guess, about yeah. how these algorithms are um, casting us or interpreting us um, for different companies. Or yeah. com- It's weird. When I think about some of the ideas in your book, John, I find myself putting companies before governments in this list that I'm creating when I'm thinking who's sort of out there um, co-opting this data. And I thought that was interesting because I thought actually before reading this that I would be more concerned about governments or national borders or what was happening but it almost seems more i don't know if that's just me but i thought it was a very astute no it's um, a very astute um kind of uh observation precisely because it's mostly companies doing this precisely because um governments or agencies like the nsa they use these private companies data troves and they hack into them and so they don't have to actually do the very capital intensive work of laying the fiber and you know doing all the data warehouses they just oh google you have this huge trove we're gonna hack into it and then we have to access it wholly so it's this kind of neoliberal conjoining of the state and corporate kind of power but often the front can't be a state because that would just be seen way too 1984 and way too like oh my god the government's crazy but now a company i have a lot of students say this they're like I don't care if Google's, you know, surveilling me because they I accede to the Google terms of service, but also what is Google going to do to me? And there's a very real and I think very short-sighted kind of argument to that, which is, you know, yes, you're right that you're not going to be put in jail because you Google a certain term, but the government will totally be able to through whatever machinations and whatever kind of like subterfuge and, and hacking potentially get information, not necessarily on you, but it will blur that line that you think is so strictly and, and clearly drawn between capital and the state because it's 
it's a melded together in this weird hybrid that we're encountering today. And and on this um, this sort of the same track here, is it because Google is not? Um, I, I, it's, I find it hard to imagine that um, the government can access and hack into Google, and it's because they're not um, preparing for it or they're not braced for it. So, is it something that's just an acquiescence, or is it something that I, I don't know? Because you would think yeah, Google like, would be <laughs> you, you would think Google would be smart enough to avoid that. So, there's two really, I think, parallel compelling answers to that question. One of which is. A lot of the engineers at Google, when they heard that they were being taken um, advantage of in terms of their their, their servers, they re- they're like, "What? I can't believe this!" They were actually outraged, and, and com- but at the upper echelons, a lot of people have been thinking, you know, there's no way, possibly, as you said, that the upper echelons wouldn't have known that there was this attack happening. Um, but it could be. Who knows? And the idea is, I'm not trying to sell Google as a you know a partner to government in the surveillance, but there is a push and a shove and a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, that I just gave a lecture just an hour ago about right. how Google and the State Department are very well connected, um, not because they're you know in cahoots together, but Google can get access to new markets and the State Department can fund free internet for countries that they're trying to you know influence through this this kind of infrastructural imperialism, one theory calls it, by producing not necessarily the content, but the infrastructure for poor countries, they're able to actually control or have direction of what the country's going to do in the future. So it's a soft power that has Google at the helm. Which seems, is it like, but what, the term in your book, biopolitics? Or, or that, would, that would play a part in it. Um, for me, the idea of biopolitics is... The idea, Foucault, who's the French philosopher who, you know, I, a commenter on Amazon said I rely on him way too much. So I'm trying to take it into perspective. Uh-huh. That it's the power over life. And so often, yeah, states and capital are not trying to necessarily decrease their population or decrease their consumer base. What they want to do is they want to foster life, but they want to foster that life in a way that keeps you in the routine of being on the site or being a good citizen. So that concept for me is very formative because we often think of power as... Being a good consumer, staying on the site to buy another pair of pants or something. People saying, I love target advertisement because it helps me buy new things. And it's like... But is it helping you or is it just suggesting it so much that then it becomes what you think is your own idea? Right. Precisely. Precisely. Or an example I like to give is a lot of people think, oh, it just gives you better information or better kind of targeted content, but often it actually makes your plane plane prices go 50 bucks higher. That, that to me was actually so very surprising. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't um, have any idea that that would be an, an example of an algorithm that's collecting data that thinks that you should be a person that could pay more for your ticket. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, and it's stupid. It's like if your screen is bigger than normal or if you have an, a Mac OS, they might front load. This was Orbits.com in 2004. They, they might front load your page and your search with actual higher price things because they think they can get that much money from you. Because and you're you saying more... this is 2004 even? 2014, I'm sorry. Oh, 14. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I was like, my God, what's happening now? <laughs> okay, let's take a short break and then we'll come back um, and talk more today with John Cheney Lippold is here. His book out with New York University Press this spring, We Are Data, Algorithms, and the Making of Our Digital Selves. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. Ice, water frozen solid. Ice, immigration and customs enforcement. Ice, el yellow. 
pasando el trapo sobre la mesa y está cuidando que todo brille como una perla. Cuando llegue la patrona que no se vuelva a quejar, no sea cosa que la acuse de ilegal. José atiende los jardines, parecen de Disneyland. Maneja una troca vieja sin la licencia. No importa si fue taxista allá en su tierra natal. Eso no cuenta para el tío Sam. suelto por esas calles nunca se sabe cuándo nos va Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today, John Cheney Leopold is here on the program, and you've got living writers. Um, thanks for picking the songs again, no, John. It and my so, pleasure. can you tell us a little bit about this particular song and and connect, like, yeah, yeah, why you chose it for today? So, so this is from a band called La Santa Cecilia. They're a Grammy award-winning Latin band from Los Angeles, and the lead singer is this woman named Marisol, who I used to play music with. It was a Mexican music when I was getting my doctorate in Los Angeles called Son Jarocho, and Son Jarocho is this amazing thing where you. You come together like 30 or 40 people and you play these songs for hours on end and you spit out verses and people respond to you. And I fell in love with it because I think that the music is like 400, 500 years old. But it, for me, it's like completely the punk rock ethos because the three chords, people from children to elderly people playing at the same time. And it's this is very communal thing. And what did you play? I played the harana, which is a rhythm instrument. It has eight, chord, eight strings. It's very similar to ukulele, but um, I think it's better. Uh, But but the, the the reason I chose the song is because there's a bunch of songs that they make that are just fantastic, and they have a couple albums out. One a live one in Mexico City just came out to plug her. Um, the the songs about ice or el hielo, so the ice in terms of Spanish, and it's about people getting deported by the ice and customs enforcement or immigration customs enforcement agency. And in the book, I talk a lot about how digital stuff has this very impactful way of how our digital lives are algorithmically determined. And in the book, and I'll talk about this later, about there's even the NSA has an algorithm to determine if you're a citizen or a foreigner of the U.S. But 
often at thinking of the high future tech stuff, we forget about the lived realities of people who are detained or deported um, despite their internet history, despite the fact that we have digital technology everywhere and we can order Ubers from you know places in remote areas, there's still people being kicked out. And so I did want to give some sort of like, you know, call out to that reality as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, and that's, it's so interesting because your book is talking about how we need to start reckoning with what are these constantly shifting and invented selves that others are inventing for us online through this gathered data. But it's, it's, it just, and I also kept thinking, but we're also walking around in the day. Like there's just so many, like which self is the self that you believe at a certain point too? Yeah. Because if someone knocks at your door, like another part, um, how they're like the Chicago police department is using the data is to, um, at risk people. Yeah. They're using this analytic approach, which is called predictive policing, which has this, Whatever, I'm not even going to comment on it, but it's, an, it's a name that suggests that there's some sort of efficacy on data that can lead policing to be better. And if policing is better, fine. But what happens normally is existing asymmetries get emphasized. And so the Chicago Police Department had this idea, which is if you look at data from city blocks, you can understand when a block is going to be high crime or low crime, and then you'd be able to put police personnel or even additional lights at that area to decrease crime. So they that, that's a kind of a very basic way of doing this. But they thought, what if we made this not about blocks, but about people? And so they created a heat list of 400 people that then they said, if you have connections either to assailants or victims of violent crimes, you are then going to be put on this list. And if you are on this list, we're going to knock on your door and we're going to say, we're watching you, so you better watch out. This obviously has extraordinary effect on psychological psychological, but also it comes from you know the fact that you know the Chicago Police Department is probably locking up I mean they definitely are locking up brown and uh, black people much more than white people so the actual data that is constituting this database by which they algorithmically determine the heat map is is going to just yeah framing it in a very particular way yeah so it's just rehashing 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 these kind of like century old racial discriminations but now they're doing it the important thing is that now they're doing it in this algorithmic form so it seemed to be smart or it seemed to be new and you know, policing or, 2.0. Or more unbiased. Or more unbiased, precisely. Which is, it's, it's so, it's completely not. It's not, and so there's a there's a phrase I really like. There's a book, an edited volume by a couple of professors. It's called, There's No Such Thing as Raw Data. And I think that's so in, yeah. instructive to us thinking about algorithms because it's using garbage. So there's a, there's a computer science kind of adage that goes garbage in, garbage out. So that even if you have the best tool or the best algorithm, anything that precedes it in terms of data will always necessarily spit out poor data. So we have to attend to not only the algorithms themselves, but the way that that data was classified or the way, how that data was gotten and in what communities was that data procured from. Okay. Let's see. What next? Do you think could we hear a little bit of from the like the prose, like how the book is working? Yeah. Were you going to read from the was it the introduction, John, or was it? The, so I the, I was so this wait, is the okay. Thing further which, in, okay. I was actually going to read. <laughs> can can I um, yeah, anywhere yeah. read from the? Let me read from this one area where I want to talk about the citizen, and we can mention this idea of the algorithmic citizen as a, and we can talk about it. But it comes from this. Um, the connection you made with uh, Google and, and the NSA. Great. 
The RSVP link for Julian Assange's 2014 book party in New York City was posted on the Facebook page of Manhattan Art Gallery Baby Castles. Although it was met with skeptical comments such as, is this supposed to be white irony or is this actually happening? And is this real? The guest list filled up weeks before the event. Assange, famed for founding WikiLeaks and defamed by sexual assault charges in Sweden, was in de facto detention in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But thanks to broadband video, his face was temporarily freed and beamed onto the gallery's walls for a conversation with those guests who believed enough in the event to RSVP. During the party, a discussion sparked by Assange's book, when Google met WikiLeaks, highlighted the striking similarity between the mission statements of Google and the U.S. National Security Agency. Google takes the world's information and, quote, makes it useful. The NSA vacuums up the world's data so as to, quote, gain a decision advantage for the nation and her allies under all circumstances. The former uses data for knowledge, order, and advertising. The latter uses data for knowledge, order, and state power. Yet, regardless of the state capital distinction, the endless production of data about our lives means that there will always be some piece of us to be pooled, stored, sorted, indexed, and exploited. The knowledge-producing challenge found in these two bodies' missions is to take the seemingly indiscriminate world of search queries, social network connections, and GPS locations and make it meaningful. The results, when cast into categories, are the measurable types of the world. That's a concept I introduce. And the resulting algorithmic identities of us as a terrorist or algorithmic swinger, and whether we like sports or not, form what philosopher Judith Butler calls the field of enabling constraints that constitute users as actors and subsequently regulate who we are and who we can be online. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm, the idea of the measurable type to be very um, thorough is... Was that gender? It's, yeah, gender. It's, it's, and I do this really annoying thing in the book where... <laughs> and I'm fully aware of it, is I put quotation marks around algorithmic conceptions and I don't put it around historical lived realities. So like a gender me, for example, I identify as a man and I perform as a man, um, but I'm a 65-year-old woman algorithmically for Google. And you can, the listeners, and I invite everybody to do this, um, to Google what gender does Google think I am. And you can Google yourself and figure out based on your search histories and, and, and stuff what Google thinks you are for profiling purposes. And the important thing is that Google's not trying to assess you as a person who's endured patriarchy, as a person who's gained you know, asymmetrical benefits in terms of resources or wages. It's just how has your consumer behavior fit within the template of a data-based 65-year-old, in the case of me, woman. And so I, I put these, these in quotations because they're not really about gender. It's not really about how many times you revolved around the sun. It's about how a database construction can produce the pattern by which we understand these new conceptions of identity, which, again, do not care if you really are that gender, so long as you start continue producing and buying like a woman. I'm a woman for the fact. And so that's a measurable type. It's something based on what is measurable, the data that is extant and empirically available, it creates a pattern that then is used for identity that has then no politics because a Google woman doesn't experience patriarchy in the way that a real woman would. Um, but also a 65-year-old, I'm, I'm hopefully not going to die sooner than somebody who's younger algorithmically, but um, I guess I, I browse like an older person, which actually makes me very happy. It makes you seem wise, yeah, John. Wise, wise. Yeah. I'm not some uh, idiot with long hair. I'm, <laughs> I'm a very thorough 65-year-old. And and so also um, within We Are Data, you say how it's modulating, like it's constantly shifting. And so is this something that you're also checking? Like, were you a 65-year-old um, female 
today as well? Or, you know, because it seemed like, because uh, I was undetermined gender mm. today when I looked. Um, <laughs> that's So I became... Hope that's okay. <laughs> you know, right? I was like, yes. <laughs> I, I became undetermined um, in terms of age. I still am a woman, thank God, but I actually became less like a 65-year-old. And, and because I didn't fit within a new age category, I am now... Immortal, I guess. So are you doing something, um, okay, not to s make something pejorative, but are you doing something right? Because when I think some, like you're saying, maybe something we could do is to confuse the algorithms. Is this something, maybe we could talk about that yeah. um, a little bit, if yeah. you don't mind. Is so, that something that you're doing purposefully? Totally. Um, that's, that's, it's a really good way to think about it is because... The categories themselves, so much like gender changes as new things about gender become, you know, materially available in the real world, you know, like when a new product comes out, there's a certain gendering of that product and there's a certain way we interpret it and lodge it within the idea of gender at large. Um, that changes. Database-wise, that gender also changes. So the idea of what Google's woman is, as you mentioned, changes. But also my experience with that gender changes and I might Google a bunch of power tools and now I'm no longer a woman, I'm a man. So... With that changing, um, it's based, instead of based on some sort of like, you know, the Catholic Church being like, oh, this is what it means to be right. a man, or the, the government saying, this is what it means to be a citizen, it's based on patterns. And so the way to, I, I suggest, resist, or the way to kind of give yourself some freedom is to be in this way undetermined, to be so about creating noise and randomness and chaos in the data that there's no signal that says you're 65, you're a woman. And so I have a couple of things in the book that I talk about, but one of them, which is my favorite, is a plugin called Track Me Not. Track Me Not is a plugin on a site that is very ingenious and it's actually poetic too, because it it says what we're going to do is have this daemon, which is a D A M E O N, but it's kind of like a demon under the bridge that is, but without you asking or without you telling them to, it's requesting from six different search engines, um, six, every six seconds, a random query. So your query of, you know, I, I, I want to buy some LaCroix um, and find out where it is, people might say, oh, he's going to buy LaCroix, so let's give him 30% more on the pricing. That could happen. But if you fit that with six queries every, or six, uh, six it would be 10 queries a, a minute, uh, 10 queries a minute from six different websites, it would completely noisify. It would make that signal entirely um unavailable so for every one thing that you might be doing just yourself generating yourself tip tap tap yeah, yeah then this program will send out just random other things Precisely. that surround it and so the idea of saying you are determined to be x yeah. it can't so you're just undetermined and so you get the normal price and so but who's running track me not nyu researchers so it's a shout out to people <laughs> who actually are academics I, and just full disclosure we are data is published by new york university press let's take a short break please, john and then please. we'll come back today on the program john cheney lippold is here i'm t hetzel you've got living writers we'll we'll be right back Tell Mar, always talk this joy to dead where I'm born. Then the question thinking is, oh, disconnected screaming. I was only screaming, stupid sounding screaming. With one voice, we leave out everything. This city's burning, burning, burning.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, John Cheney Lipold is here. We are data, algorithms, and the making of our digital selves. Um, that was a great song. I feel like more woken up um, <laughs> now, you know, like, and yeah, there's something about, tell, why the song, what's, yeah. So first you... off, I want to say that that band is called Black Eyes, not Black IPs, not Black Guys. It's Black Eyes, and it's uh, a band from Washington, D.C. on the Discord label. There's two drummers, two bassists, and a guy plays a guitar but doesn't really play it in terms of kind of like, you know. A person. It's it's noises. Um, so it's very rhythmy. And anyway, they, they, they were from D.C. and I went to college for the explicit purpose of joining the D.C. punk scene. I didn't really care about academics, which is weird to be an academic now. And they were one of these bands that completely blew my mind. Um, they, they're on Discord and they... They, they they have this energy in their songs, but they also had a politics, and I really like the politics. And so one of the guys, Hugh McElroy, is a, a, the singer of the band, one of the singers, he um, critiqued the idea of do-it-yourself, which is what DC is known for. You know, you don't rely on institutions. You do it yourself. You just make your own labels. You make your own shows. You don't have to worry about other people telling you no. Which is so ironic, since yeah. it's where the seat of the government. Exactly, well. precisely. Like, like in Portland, you can be like, yeah, right, you know, yeah. of course, you know. But, <laughs> but there's also something to say about DC or being like, there's like, in DC is, is a separate city where there's all the kind of like, like lanyards who like kind of go there to be interns and then there's the, the majority black people but also the other the people who live there and like go to like have to endure the nation's capital under the yes. weight of yeah the, the capital building that looms precisely and so, and so they so Hugh he's like you know do it yourself is whatever I'd rather do it together and as hokey as that is I totally <laughs> love it I totally love it. And so in one of the, um, and he's like, you know, we have to rely on other people. We can't do it ourselves to re kind of purpose this liberal dream of just independent Americans can you know, accomplish everything. So in this song. And then within the scene too. So it seems so important. Yes. Because he was taking a risk trying to say this. Yeah. And I mean, uh, eventually people are like, you're totally right. And he was the only person. He actually got it from um, the queer community within the East Coast. And so I don't want to kind of make it only him. But um the, the the song we we heard is called Letter to Raoul Peck, the director who did the bunch of amazing things, but most recently the James Baldwin film. Um, but the the lyric I have in the epigraph of the, ch the subjectivity chapter is stupid sound and screaming with one voice we leave out everything, and so for that I like the politics of that, but also that is the way to sashay into the argument of that chapter about subjectivity is that online with our data it's never just ut and your data it's you are T, but you are also like somebody else. And so we're not going to ever understand you. We don't care about you. We just care about you in order to make a prediction and to fit you within a category or a column that is comparable enough to who you might be that is effective. So this is how Amazon recommendations also work. So you when know, you're saying we... We are a collective assemblage of different people who do not identify individually. We're just put in these categories of like-minded or appear to be like similar um, groups of people and so and that's one side of the we but then when you're saying we don't care who you are no, that too what's that we it's, how are we defining and imagining that so the we don't care who you are is always like i think of it as like the robbery of subjectivity because normally when somebody's trying to talk to you empower you or control you they have to respond to some resistance they have to say excuse me I need to say, yes, LaCroix is just very bubbly. It's bubbly. <laughs> um, they have, it's like you have to respond. Usually power pushes back. That's Newton's law, but it's also just how normally we think of struggle. That Increasingly, the we is not able to talk back. The we is categorized from afar. 
your prices, your content, um, who you're supposed to be is dictated behind some curtain. You never really feel it directly. So you can't really resist it. You can't point to something and say, that's the reason why I had to pay 50 you can't, bucks more. You can't see it. You can't speak to it. You don't even know it's yeah, happening. Exactly. And so I think a lot of the times when the, I use the we intentionally, a lot of people are phobic of the we because it's a facing difference. It says, you know, if somebody says, you know, we all don't like this, you're like, who are you to say that? But it's to say that the we is doubled in the sense that we all are, anybody has data, most people produce data, and this is not to be, you know, only people in the first world, people in the third world have phones. I mean, there's not a person, there's a lot of people who don't, but most, the majority of the world have a phone that then produces data. So we can potentially be, everybody produces data, but also the we is the way that states see the we. It's yeah, we the people, but really not the people. It's we the state crafters, the people who actually have power, who are going to speak for the people. And so that's the way I, I framed it. Yeah, the more I look at it, the more almost confusing it becomes to me in this thinking of, because the we is, is shifting mm -hmm. just as the, the data is yeah. constantly. Yeah. Um, okay, so privacy if we're thinking about that a little bit, um, because we aren't really where you mentioned earlier, the omnipresent, um, <laughs> agreements that we, we just agree to or check off, um, without reading them, right. To, to enter many different, to have an, an app or just anything. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the big ones like yeah. agreeing so that you have Gmail, you agree. Um, so, um, like what, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a way not to enter into this, not to have um, some data that yeah. that we're a part of out there Yeah, I, in the modern world, right? It's entirely impossible. And so I think that there's something unnerving about the focus on these terms of service because for two things, one of which is nobody reads them. And to be responsible for reading all of them is just, it's way too laborious. And nobody does it. Nobody understands it. But I think more... But, but then that's purposeful, isn't it? Yes. Because then... Yes. It's like we're desensitized to it. Exactly. So just like it used to be creepy when ads would pop up on our sidebars. I remember the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> way yeah. Way back, children. Way back. But when it was like those first coming on, it was like, why did they know I was looking at that backpack? Mm -hmm. Or why is that there? Mm -hmm. Um you know, and now totally. it's like, of course it's, it's just, there. It's, nah, all right. Yeah. Another but, thing. But, but it's to say, too, is, and there's a part in the book where I talk about how Facebook did this experiment, and they actually changed the – so it's legal. So, it's, so the, the big thing about terms of service is that it's kind of like walking to somebody's house, and somebody say, like, well, if you come into my house, I'll let you in the house, but you have to do exactly what I say. And you're like, yeah, sure, because you're my friend, whatever. But <laughs> Facebook does that. You can come into the site as long as you do everything and you give us kind of access to everything. You're like, great. But Facebook can change that – in a second. And they can change it back in a second. So the idea of choosing, I want to agree to, even if I read it and had a lawyer look over it, they still could change it without me knowing. And it's on me to constantly evaluate if something's been changed, whatever. Oh, really? So that's yeah. probably one of the bylines that you're checking that you agree to is yeah, that, that this, this means can be nothing. changing as yeah. long as that we've so it's established the relationship that you've agreed to be in it. And you put so. the hundreds of hours of kind of time and emotional labor to connect with your friends on the site so you don't want to leave it. So even if they did inch that terms of service away from what you normally would accede to, it's it's too much to leave it. And so that's really kind of what we're thinking. We, th we like to idealize this choice we have online, but really we're not given a choice. We're given a, do you either want to be on the social network or do you not want to be? And most people are having to be on it for whatever purposes or having to accede to some sort of email for some purposes. And so because of that, 
the idea of this terms of service seems to be just be, it's this facile knob that is just legally important, but it really doesn't matter. So, so what, um, I, right now in where we are in the present moment, um, uh, so what, what can we do to somehow, because the words, uh, to somehow like be as, um, kind of present and, and sort of, um, aware of what's happening, even if we yeah. can't see it or, um, uh, you, you know, what, what suggestions do you have? Cause I know you said like create confusion. Yeah. So, you know, try not to, um, but you know what, actually, so what can we do? And yeah. then maybe also this idea of, can we invent ourselves? Like, is there a way we can use it so that we're creating multiple selves out there that, that somehow thing- you, like we're more empowered by our data and we're can be unnamed by those that would surveil or control us. I think that the idea of multiple selves is because we do have multiple selves. The idea of like we're only it's not T, you're not the same here as you are at home, as you are with your friends. Like it's completely of gonna course. be yeah. Right, right. We so we have to perform that though. And the important thing is like Facebook and these Gmail companies or whatever, they want to make you one person. They want to make you a singular thing. So often the complexities of who we are don't fit within that exclusive rubric. So by performing these multiplicities, you actually do become undetermined or you become unable to be to fit within the very, you know, very narrow percentage confidence rubrics of if you're a gendered woman or gendered So how much work does that take, though? It takes a lot. Okay. Yeah, it takes a lot. And so I was thinking about this in terms of the privacy chat. So when you bring up privacy, it's about it's an intense thing because in the privacy discussion, it's this kind of long argument about what is privacy? And I go back to the 19th century and I go back to even the dean of the law school of Michigan, Thomas Cooley, who said we should have the right to be let alone, which is what you're going to say, right? And in 1880, he wrote that. And he wasn't talking about being let alone in terms of, you know, mom, get out of my room. It's, he said it's the let to be, to be let alone from being uh, forced into energy, which is what people do when you're about to strike them or you're putting them in danger. So he's like, you should not have to feel that because the right to be alone is not necessarily the right to just be by yourself. It's the right to be away from some sort of controlling thing, even if it's not physical, even if it's not assaulting, even if it's not a direct. So it's this control it's yeah. or watching. Yeah, yeah. So it's just to feel like to feel like you have to preserve your energy is, you know, what a lot of, not to, like, well, I'm not a woman, but like what a lot of women have to do when they walk down the street at night. That should be protected, I think, in the right to privacy because the right to privacy of just closing your door, Catherine McKinnon, a very famous legal scholar at the University of Michigan, as well, she very famously said the right to privacy in the contemporary form is really not the right to privacy, a right to be let alone. It's the right for men to be let alone because it was up until 1993 that marital rape was not a thing in all 50 states. So in that idea of the house being the sanctuary for the cat, Warren and Brandeis, who were you know, two legal scholars after, said, you know, war, man in his house, man as his castle impregnable. So the the house as the impregnable castle by which nobody can assault what it. What language, too. I know. At the same time, it's just entirely stupid because, you know, often we feel more private with our friends. We feel more private with company. We feel more private, comfortable, and not having to reserve energy in order because we're worried about somebody attacking us or somebody insulting us or controlling us. And so I try to think about that in terms of privacy online because we will, and this is not to be kind of a, a naysayer, but we can't get back to the idyllic past of like, a house where you just close the door and then you're completely out of the world because everything from our TVs to our 
refrigerators now are surveilling us to our um, computers to our phones all these things are having and connecting data to it rather what if we looked at the right to privacy as the right to be let alone from these controlling machinations of paying higher prices or having your content be directed to you having your friends be told you have to be friends with these people instead of those people or eventually getting a knock on your door because you're friends with the wrong people in the chicago police department doesn't like that so for privacy for me then the idea of like confusing these things to make you so you don't actually appear as a pattern on that world or in that world is to eventually get what Thomas Cooley said, which is that you're not having to, they're trying to give me a higher price. I have to watch out because if we know we're being affected, that's, I think the most important thing because we can never know exactly how, but we can always figure out how we can maybe avoid it or how we can maybe, again, make it so we're not being the we're not having to reserve ourselves or kind of like brace ourselves for some impending impact. It almost feels like though, and I don't mean to sound hopeless, but it feels like if that's what we start doing, then there'll be something created that reworks through that you're, to find a through line. You're totally that, right. And that's what happens. It's like a cat and mouse game. And so I begin the privacy chapter in a hopeless way, which is kind of a bummer, but I, did, I didn't want it. A lot of last chapters are like, and this is not going to be an issue at all because we're going to resist. But I begin with a guy named Mark Hemmings who died. In, he was 41 years old. He called 999, which is a UK 911. And he talks, or he's, he, he, he gives these, um, he, he says, I need a hospital. I, I need an ambulance. I'm really, really in pain. He says, I'm in agonizing pain like seven times. He requests an ambulance another seven times. And the operator is actually this person who is feeding his inputs into an algorithm. He doesn't know this. And so what he does is he auth like very authentically and earnestly answers everything. He actually diagnoses himself. He's like, I got a pancreatic problems, but he was found. At, well, actually the operator said, you know what, it doesn't look like from your answers that you need emergency transport. If you become unconscious, call back, which would mean that your algorithmic <laughs> input would change, right. which is but insane. Then, yeah. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. But then and go see your GP in two hours yeah. or something. Didn't it say like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you, these are not things that people can do who no. are about to die. And no. so eventually the horrible things he said. And so I, de I dedicate the book to him precisely because he knew... And he diagnosed it as the algorithm wasn't programmed to diagnose pancreatic problems. It was only diagnosed to understand heart problems, not pancreatic problems that cause heart problems. And so the complexity of the human body and the complexity of medical histories can not, never be algorithmically determined. There's always going to be something that's going to be a casualty. And I feel like that in the book is also the complexity and who we are and what we might in the future possibilities. That still is very human, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that hope is in there. But the thing is, is that you're also talking about everything that's encroaching yeah to try and shape or to um, funnel who we could be. Exactly. And that's the totally disturbing part. Yeah. Let's, take, let's take a short break. We'll be back today on the program. John Cheney Lipold is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Viajo este sueño verdadero Sobre los vasos diluvian palabras 
se abraza como enredadera a la noche que ya es madrugada y en los barcos que buscan su puerto quieren navegar para darle el olivo al dolor todo se escapa sin medida como la luna que desaparece nacen autos en la avenida y despiertan a la mañana los gorriones despegan las alas, salen a volar por la Back. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Levine Writers. And if you're just tuning in, I'm really glad you did because um, you're, you're catching the last part of the conversation with today's guest, John Cheney Lipold, who his book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves, um, just out this spring with New York University Press, um, pushed up for an earlier release, too. Yeah, um, because of the Trump election. Just terrifying, but... If there's any silver lining, my book was out before it should have been. So, oh. Well, we're all happy for you, John. Thank no, you just, so much. Just kidding. No, we are happy. I am I'm happy. I know. We are. We are data. We are happy. We are happy. Um, and you're going to be reading at Literati Bookstore tomorrow at seven yes. and talking, um, talking about question. You know, having like a conversation with folks there, so people and can also, swing by. I heard people should get there early. Because I heard C-SPAN is going to be doing a video for us for Book TV, which is very nice. How? But it was going to make it a whole big shindig instead of just a reading. So, so I want that, to be attentive to that. Wow. And there yeah. might be party favors. There <laughs> might be C-SPAN tote bags. Yeah. Oh. Which I don't promise. I don't promise them. You can ask them. But... Um, so that's tomorrow at Literati Bookstore, 7 p.m. Um, and the book, We Are Data Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. That's great, John. So C-SPAN. Okay. So... Um, Let's talk a little bit about the music again, because yeah. also music seems very, um, it's so important to your life. It's, it's yeah. kind of made decisions for you along the way, that it, and it, soccer. It's, it's the, <laughs> it, yeah, it's weird, like yeah, the, the passions of sport and music. Um, the, the fact when, when you asked me to be on, I was so enchanted by able to soundtrack it with music. And so the song we heard is from one of my friend's bands in Argentina called Flor Maleva. And you can download all their stuff on flormaleva.bandcamp.com. Um, my friend Walter, who's a guitarist for them, he will be totally enchanted, but he doesn't speak English. So it's going to be... I'm not going to speak Spanish, Joe. But, um, you can. Yeah, bueno, yo te doy un saludo, Walter. No. Um, but what I'm going to say is that it's funny because I wanted to play Heem's Soup Boys, which is about drones. It's a rap song about drones by this guy named Heem's who was in Das Racist. But I guess there was an FCC issue, which I didn't know, so I'm sorry. <laughs> that the FCC exists in order to make it so we can't hear a song about drones. But that song is about this one bar that I used to go to all this. It was this tango bar that was made in the late 19th century, and it would just be a bunch of drunk guys and drunk women hanging out singing tango songs with your hands on your shoulders. It was So think about music. That's where I would go after I'd write the book. I'd just go and hang with my old friends. Yeah, It was great. It was fantastic. But that was called, it was called Cuchichos, which means knives. I wonder where you're going to go when you write the next book, John. So hopefully... Yeah, well, because well, you have to go out of the country again. Maybe. I, 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 I'd like so thinking about how I write. Yeah, I like writing outside of the country. I like I like doing research in the U.S. and having all the kind of you know institutional support. But then once it comes to the creative process and the prose, 
to really get out and really have to force myself to think differently. So, And was that time in Argentina the first time that you experienced it happening? And then you just felt like, oh, this could be part of a way my process really works? Or, no, or it was... I, I, when I was in graduate school, every summer I would go someplace different. So I'd go to like Mexico or Venezuela or Spain or whatever. And so I would always be writing when I was someplace else. And I always found it just so instructive and so helpful. But also as like kind of when you're traveling, you get tired of traveling. So I'm like, I just want to sit down and do my work. And so it was the only time also that I could figure out like, I want to do work. I want to labor. I want to, you know, but, um, for for me. So anyway, the Flor Maleva, yeah, check yeah. them out. They're they're yeah. amazing. I'm very very fond of the band. And 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 just a, also a writing question too. Like so, when you were a kid, were you also writing? What or was writing for you always connected to scholarship and ideas? That's uh, so. It wasn't. It was. I, I did a lot of freelance, not freelance, uh, like fiction writing just by myself. Um, nothing ever published. But then eventually, I got hired when I was in graduate school to be an editor for a blog called TruthDig.com. It was. A progressive political blog and so I was able to get a little bit of money when I was doing my graduate work to to, to travel write, to travel and to write and it was, it was great it was fun it was a really nice job to have at the same time because also you get indebted to that academic kind of like seven line sentences and in, in journalism you can't so you have to be insightful you have to be insistent and you have to be yeah curt so yeah yeah the I language moves differently precisely and so and like we were saying well as I was mentioning earlier we are data um yeah, you can you can really you can get in there and read it. You don't. I mean, the ideas are there that so you can start reckoning with them. Yeah. on your on your own as well. Yeah, and also I I wrote it. I, I I said I told my mom. I'm like I wrote it, mom, so you can read it. And so I I do things like and I I try to bring examples to bear that are about things that we all care about, not just like you know exoteric things or even like creative stuff. So one example that I mentioned earlier was how the NSA determines if you're a citizen. And so I was completely enthralled by this because I saw the 2013 Snowden revelations and when they found, when, when he described this PRISM program, which is how the NSA was able to surveil Facebook and Google and, and everybody else, it's that they said, we surveil people based on a percentage confidence model of if you're 51% foreigner, we can surveil you. Because often, as you know, like when you're online, there's no passport, there's no border check, there's no way to prove your citizenship. So they created an algorithm based on metadata to determine if or if not they could surveil you. And this algorithm is based on things that are entirely different from what we normally think of as citizenship, such as... Do you speak a language other than English? You were like, it's it's a horrible Jeff author. That That's worrying. Dance. Yeah, it's like you might you might be a foreigner if you speak a language other than English. You have friends who are outside the U.S. You yourself have been outside the U.S. Um, if you use encryption, these are things that have nothing to do with citizenship, obviously, but are instructive because that's how the government, the NSA, was able to evade the constitutional protections in the fourth. Fifth, Seventh, Ninth Amendment that allow us this right to privacy, um, but in the same time, and I think the more important thing is it actually recasts with the idea of what a citizen was. The citizen wasn't something that we can say, "I'm a citizen." How dare you? It was, "I can be a citizen today. I can be a citizen tomorrow. I can be a foreigner the next day." Precisely because my data is the only index for who I am. So there is a very cool artist named James Bridal who made an app for Google Chrome as well as Firefox that actually dictates and tells you what your citizenship is percentage-wise. It's called citizen-exex.com. So I'm very indebted to him for making this accessible example that somebody like my mom can use to check out how every day, every piece of data you put up on the internet is potentially changing if you're a citizen, if you're seen as white or brown or black, if you're gay or straight. There's algorithms that determine your sexuality, which is so bonkers for me. But I guess anything's, a, anything's bonkers when you get down to it. Like They have an algorithm that determines who's a terrorist, which... 
In the case of um, the Obama administration, they changed from a targeted strike to a signature strike in 2009. A targeted strike was somebody was on the ground and they said, I know this person who we're trying to assassinate is in this building and I see him or her. And so the drone would kill them. And so then they said, this is too laborious and they're running into all these issues. And so they said, instead of a targeted strike, we're going to do a signature strike. A signature strike is this cell phone has data patterns that are similar to a terrorist. So thus we're going to kill them. And it's... Ridiculous, because the idea of they, they actually were only targeting cell phones. They weren't targeting bodies. They were talking about where a GPS location for a cell phone was beaming from. Um, and then what happened, and a lot of people have argued this, that this increased civilian deaths dramatically because a lot of like wedding parties in Yemen and in, in Pakistan were being killed because imagine you have a couple people or 25 people outside the city center about 30 miles away, and it looks like a terrorist meeting if you're looking only at data, but it's actually it's a, a wedding, wedding party, so they killed them. Yeah. Horrible, 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 horrible. But it also gets to the lived realities of, yes, it is about data and targeted content and if or if not you're a woman and how old you are. But it's also about the real life and death decisions made by governments for privacy issues as well as death and you know assassination that increasingly, the, the argument of the book, too, is that I'm using all these examples that are entirely going to be outdated within two years. And I totally accept that. But what I hope the book will show people is that as we rely more and more on data, we're indebted more and more to these logics where we trust data more than we trust ourselves. We say, authenticate but, me with data instead of who I am. But that's bonkers. It's totally bonkers. But it is increasingly efficacious for the capital because they don't have to actually, you know, authenticate somebody with the laborious process of a person talking to another person to make sure that you're T and I'm John. Rather, it's does your data suggest that? Sure, that's good enough, and we'll authenticate it accordingly. It just seems so dodgy. It's very dodgy. It's also, but it's perfectly in tune with I think a lot of how we understand ourselves because well, what feels like we're distancing. Yeah, like nobody each other. Yeah, we're relying on on these models of of behavior versus actually understanding like what is gender? How is gender producing difference or producing uh, proximity? How can Companies uh, like OkCupid, which is a dating site, they're using algorithms in order to facilitate sexual relations, which is you know great for people who use it. But at the same time, you're almost giving yourself over to the logic of this. And what it's trying to do is not necessarily find people true love. It's trying to connect two like-minded people together, which is an entirely different thing than finding romance. Yeah. And you quote OkCupid in here too, which I thought was the quote was quite chilling because it was something about making a, a story that a, a an algorithm is to make a story that the computer will understand. Yeah, the actual, and that's what matters. The actual quotation is the ability to take real world phenomena and make them something a microchip can understand is, I think, the most important skill anyone can have this day. Which is for computer science people, that's what the normal you know, goal of, of life is, but for other people who are more artistic or more creative or not as engineering focused, that really does rob ourselves of subjective authorship as well as the complexities of being outside a computer microchip. What is a life that doesn't, cannot be computed? So yeah, is your next book, We Are Human? I, <laughs> I think my next book is Masculinity in Silicon Valley, which I want to call Valley Boys, like Valley Girls. <laughs> But hopefully nobody will take that book title since I said it. Um, but it, I'm really interested in the, the cult of, of what masculinity is in the Silicon Valley world. So hopefully we'll talk about that later when I, t when I publish it. Yes. I, oh, I shall back. look forward to it, Please. John. Um, so today on the program, John Cheney Lippold is here. Um, we've been talking about his book, We Are Data, Algorithms, and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Um, 
thanks to Betsy at New York University Press. Um, thanks to you guys out there for listening. Thanks to the Liz for being behind the glass and making us sound good. And John Cheney Lapold will be tomorrow at Literati Bookstore with his book, We Are Data, Algorithms, and the Making of Our Digital Selves. And C-SPAN will be there, too. Maybe you will be, too. I'm Tietzel. Until next time. Just hear. I can only hear that. Can you can you even hear us? Hello and welcome inside of the WCBN studios for the Daily Sports Report. I'm your host today, Amir Bektash, joined by Daniel Owen and Vihan. Guys, how are you guys doing on this fine Wednesday? Good. Good. We're, we're great. Thank you. Oh yeah. You guys can hear me now? All right, good. Can you hear us? Technical difficulty. How are you guys doing on this Wednesday? We're great. Pretty How good. How are you doing? Yeah. Doing great, man. Doing great. Michigan football making some news yesterday on the Twitter world. Donovan Edwards interrupting J.J. McCarthy's press conference for a Chick-fil-A meal. Just curious to see what is your guys' order when you guys go to Chick-fil-A. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, so I tend to get waffle fries, sauce, and... Their milkshakes are pretty good. By the way, I love this opening question. <laughs> but I will say, I go for the spicy chicken sandwich meal. It's a shame we don't have any Chick-fil-A's up here in Ann Arbor. I think the nearest one is on EMU's campus, which is probably about a 20-minute drive away. But uh, when I get the chance to get some Chick-fil-A, I, I enjoy it. I make sure to savor it. Yeah, definitely the spicy chicken sandwich. That's that's the thing, right? So, All my WCBN fans know that Chick-fil-A is my go-to spot. Well, what's your order? You got to go with the spicy chicken deluxe and then some chicken nuggets on the side. Maybe Ooh. mac and cheese. It's a lot of protein. Depends on the mood, yeah. Ooh. I know uh, <laughs> when we were going on the trip to Wisconsin, Charlie Brigham will remember this one pretty well. It was along with Adam Bressler. They claim that I made him go an extra half hour out of our <laughs> way to get Chick-fil-A. 